Now let's begin today by turning to Luke 14. And uh, we'll begin reading here in uh, verse number 28. Luke 14 and verse number 28. Here's Jesus speaking. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it, lest, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So, it's very wise for a king in such a circumstance to see what he's up against. So, uh, my subject today is, I'm going to entitle this, Who Will Win the Battle? And What Are We Up Against? An important scripture, I think, that identifies a battle that's taking place is found here in uh, Galatians 5, verse number 17. Galatians 5 and verse number 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now this has to be referring to the Spirit of God, because the spirit that man has, meaning his own mind, is usually in agreement with his uh, lusts and his passions, and this is why people generally do the things they do. However, afterwards they may have second thoughts or they may have regrets, but that doesn't change the particular act that or acts that were done. So this struggle is going on almost constantly with regard to those of us who have a knowledge of the truth and have a measure of God's Spirit, this struggle, the Spirit against the flesh. And as a result, uh, often we, we do not do perfectly by any means the things that we would, would really like to do well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 5. 1 Corinthians 10. See, we see that uh, we go back to the Old Testament, ex Old Testament experience, and we see there that uh, we read in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses on the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's telling you in plain language that the rock or the God of the Old Testament that led Israel was the one who became the Christ. Now, but notice the next verse. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So here was a whole nation of people. Remember now, they'd been a few hundred years in Egypt under the influence of that ungodly society, and uh, really they were unable to shake their past, and so that entire generation died in the wilderness and was not allowed to enter into the Holy Land. Only their children were. Those who were 20 years, a curse was placed on them, and for 40 years they were they were confined, if I can use the word confined, to the wilderness. So they, all that generation died off, and the second generation, the youngsters, who were 20 years old at the time this um, measure was taken by God, were allowed to enter the land under Joshua. He was not pleased with them. So we see a whole generation of people whose, uh, whose behavior and whose patterns of life and living were based on fleshly appetites in the things of the flesh, not the spirit. Now that's important to recognize because remember in the Old Testament period outside of the prophets who received the spirit working with them that the Holy Spirit was not made available, was not given to them. 
But the law that they were required to obey was strictly a physical law. They were not held accountable to any kind of a spiritual intent of that law. And when Christ came, and uh, the, the, the whole heart and core of the entire teaching of Christ is in three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the crux of it. And what he shows right there is we're not judged only by the letter of the law, but we're judged by the spiritual intent of the law and what that, in, what that should mean in our, in our thinking and our behavior. These people didn't have the capability within them. Now, we came to, he came to his own, didn't he? This was after they had, uh, these Jews had returned from the Babylonian captivity, although this was only just a small portion of the Jews. Most people don't realize this, but when those Jews came back to Babylon, the vast, vast majority of them remembered, remained in Babylon and later were scattered around the world. And at an earlier date, when the Assyrians came down and attacked Judah and Israel, they, they took Israel captive, but they also took thousands and thousands of Jews captive too. And they were scattered all throughout the Caucasus regions. That's where they're last seen in history. That's not where they ended up, though. But as you read here in John, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, spiritual enlightenment would give them life, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So even in Christ's time, when he was bringing the gospel message, the true gospel message, they were unable to comprehend it except a minority uh, as far as the general population was concerned, who, who were given the understanding of it, the rest couldn't. Second Timothy two four. Second Timothy chapter two and verse number four. See, we are fighting this spiritual fight, and as I'll point out before we're done here today, that spiritual fight does not involve being involved in the fights of this world. The fights of this world, for the most part, are unrighteous fights. If you could ever say there was righteous warfare, it was that warfare which God authorized for Israel to carry out against these heathen people. Now, I read Albert Pike's um, main book on masonry, and uh, I forget what it was called. It was, I can't remember the exact title of it now. But anyway, he, he quotes in there Madame Blavatsky, who was a very, very prominent occultist, and she was going on how terrible it was for these Israelites to have gone in and killed those poor women and children in that land of Canaan when they came in and conquered it. Now, why would she say that? Unless she was in agreement with the way these people behaved. Every single evil that you could imagine was being practiced by these people and by their children. Human sacrifice, sacrificing their own children, Read, read Leviticus 19 and 20, and you'll get a good example of what those people were like. And uh, can you take people like that who've lived in that kind of a lifestyle and it's been a habitual way all of their lives and then all of a sudden make them change? Yes, good. It, makes me, it reminds me of Charlemagne. He doesn't have a thing on the Muslims. It was a deplorable practice of Charlemagne to force all those he conquered to become Christians. Remember, Charlemagne was a great conqueror of all of Europe. He conquered all of Europe and set up the, the, uh, the uh, uh, reinstitution of the Holy Roman Empire. The Franks, the Franks are the ones who, who ruled that for a number of years. He, into the rivers and lakes near the battlefield, he drove his defeated enemies to be baptized. Thus thousands of Saxons were made to profess the Christian faith. Naturally, it did them little good for they did not know what they were pledging and they had no desire to accept it. One scheme Charlemagne hit on to persuade the Saxons to be baptized peaceably was to give every convert a clean white shirt. So numerous were the requests for these shirts that the supply ran out and the newly baptized began receiving instead a coarse yellow shirt. This was not so attractive as we gather from a disdainful remark of a Saxon chieftain, chieftain 
who was offered a yellow shirt, quote, I've been baptized already 20 times and received white shirts, and I refuse to be baptized anymore and will have nothing to do with the religion that is so stingy with its clothes, unquote. See, that's conversion, isn't it? That's the same way that the Muslims do. You know, they came in and said, now you either accept Allah as God and Muslim, uh, Muhammad and his prophet, or you'll, you'll, you'll be put to the sword. Now, can people really change on, on that kind of a coercion? So even in the Old Testament, it was a civil government, and these people were educated over a period of time, but when it came to the time of Christ coming to his own people, they didn't even comprehend it because they had established a traditional religion that was in many ways contrary to what the original law of God was. But you see, we're not to be involved in the wars of this world. We're not, we're not to be involved. If we're having a struggle and a fight, a fight that's going on, that fight that's going on is a spiritual fight. That's why it says here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4, no one engaged in warfare. Now what kind of warfare are we talking about? Well, we can't be talking about the warfare of the world because he says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. So the warfare we're enduring is a, is a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. James 4, verse number 5. James 4, verse 5. Do you think that the spirit says in vain, and in the scripture I mean, this the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us desires to envy. Now, when you stop and consider envy, what are we looking at? We're looking at this human nature, aren't we? And uh, how many times do you have you experienced people who have been envy envious over what you did or they're envious over what other people have done or you've been envious yourself? So that's, that's just human nature. That's a part of the struggle that we're up against, aren't we? Spirit versus the flesh. Now, that being the case, what, what then are we really... Let's, let's expand on that a little bit. What else, what else are we really up against? Well, John 2, verse 25. Here's an example. You see, many believed, as we read here in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Or I think as one of the other translations, he knew, he knew what was in man. He made man, didn't he? And he made him with his nature. So we have this physical, carnal nature. It's what we're born with. That's what makes us human. The difference between us and God is God does not have human nature. God has God nature. I'm just amazed when I stop and think of a God that we worship. Every single thing we find that's wholesome and good and wonderful is what this God is. And look what we are. Why did God, you know, I've, I've just, it, the, the question just, I wish I knew the answer. Why is God the way he is? Maybe someday we'll find out if we make it into the kingdom of God. That's a question that is beyond our uh, capability of understanding now. And as the Bible says, the secret things belong to God. We know what the Bible, the, the Bible tells us plainly who God is. But you know something? It never tells us why God is. That's the enigma. But if we have faith and confidence just by very, the fact that we're human beings alive on this earth and we know that there has to be something superior, far superior to us because anything that uh, is created has to be created by something that is superior. And so we have this God that's just, it's just unbelievable and yet he made us, as Jesus said, he didn't commit himself to men because he knew what was in men. So, recognizing that, I'd say the first part of the whole struggle we face in this human life is, is coming to grips with what we really are and being willing to admit it 
one of the problems with so many people today is they will not admit that they, they, they have faults or they have shortcomings, that they're guilty of this and guilty of that, because they cannot accept the fact that they're human beings with human nature. You can't, well, you can make some, some improvements in human nature, of course. Uh, there are people who have been on drugs and they have, have broken the drug habit, and there have been people who have, who have uh, broken various uh, other evils of one type or na nature. But, as, uh, but as, I've, as I've explained earlier, all these physical things that you may be able to accomplish is at a certain level. And for your own benefit and for the benefit of others, that's good. If you live uh, a decent life according to this particular level. But there's, there's a level much higher we're being judged by. That's the God level. And that's a level we've got to attain to. So when we read here in Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 20... Here's what we read. There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. In other words, if he's even a just man, he's going to make mistakes and sin. And so this is what we're up against. Romans uh, 7, verse 18. Romans 7 and verse 18. This, this seventh chapter of Romans will give you one of the best descriptions of the struggle we face and what human nature is really like because Paul spells it all out here in plain language anyone can understand. And here's what he said. I'm, only, I'm not going to dwell on this chapter. I'm just going to read... One text here that I pretty, pretty well lays it out, and this is in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. There's the Spirit, you see, being inspired by God. But how to perform what is good I do not find. So the same struggle that we go through, Paul went through. And here's a good description of what we're up against. James 3, verse number 2. We all stumble in many things. But really the identifying criteria is right here in the remainder of this verse. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle the whole body. What that saying is, if you can control your tongue, you are, you are, you are able to control the impulses that are contrary. So which one of us is able to control the tongue? That's what we're up against. Second Timothy two twenty six. Second Timothy two twenty six. And uh, this is a rather awkward uh, translation in the King James, and even in this New King James. I'm going to read it as it should, as a Greek actually should be stated here. Um. We read here that in, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him into his will. So they become influenced. And if I can point out what I read earlier, you listen to television and you listen to all this foul language and this sexuality that goes on and this nudity and this lewdness that you find on the television screen and you become used to that. Are you going to be take, taken captive into his will? That's how he does it. When I was a young man, 
This goes back into the 50s. Homosexuality was hardly heard of. And no homosexual would have dared expose himself. Now what do we have going on today? You talk about a moral decline that has taken place in this nation, and what do you think is one of the primary influences, if not the primary influence? Television. Absolutely. Acts 26, 18. I'm talking about what we're up against. I'll tell you what we're up against. Acts 26, verse 18. Here Paul was given this, uh, this commission to go to the Gentiles. And what did he say here? To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, who is the God of this? Who is the God of this world? When I was a little boy, I used to go to one of the popular main line churches, and we used to sing in Sunday school, "This is my Father's world." Well, that's not what the Bible says. This is Satan's world. Satan is the God of this world, the present God of this world, and God has allowed him to do that. And if you're linked in and tied in with his world, you're a part of his system. That's why Christians are told to come out of it. And to come out of it, you first have to recognize what's wrong with it. So uh, what chance do we really have of surviving and coming out ahead without God's help? What is life like without God's help? Well, notice John 3, verse 19. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now let me ask you this. How many times do you feel see people and hear people on television or even in reading periodicals or newspapers and this kind of thing are just absolutely down on God in every way? I bought a book the other day. It's entitled God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. And I'm going to go through that book and I'm going to digest that thing very thoroughly. You never saw a man in your life who's so hateful and absolutely despises God and everything God represents. Why? Well, sure, he's an atheist. But the fact is, why do men love darkness rather than light? Because their deeds are evil. They do not want God telling them what to do. And if you want to know the truth, that's the thesis behind evolution. And leading evolutionists have actually admitted that they are not going to have a God telling them what to do. And if you think evolution is not a religion, then you need to learn something, because that's exactly what it is. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now we're talking about men who have no contact and have, do not have any of God's help. All right, now let's go to Luke 16, verse number 15. When I was a boy, I was really interested in basketball. And I played my first basket played my first basketball game when I was uh, in the seventh grade. And the first basket I ever made in my whole life was made for the other team. <laughs> well, by the time I got out of high school, I had a grant and aid offered to me to go to one of the colleges there in Montana on a basketball scholarship. And I, I thought the most important men of my whole life were these big pro basketball players. I just practically uh, was, I was idolized them. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even walk to the next room now to watch a basketball game. If you want to know the truth. And uh, maybe it's because of conversion. Maybe it's because of age. I don't know. But I can tell you what the Bible says here very plainly. 
because the Pharisees who were lovers of money, as we read here in verse 14, they derided Christ for what he said. And then he said to them, this is in Luke 16, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now keep that in mind. Now that doesn't mean you should hate the world and you should, you should not hate the people in the world, but you better recognize its shortcomings and its flaws and its futility. And if you recognize those things, you will not be... Uh, uh, liable to be caught up in it, so you're going to end up disobeying God in the end. There are many things that in this in the world that you can certainly indulge in and participate in, sports and various things of one type or another, but you better have a proper perspective. <coughs> Romans 8, verse number 8. Romans 8, verse number 8. We have heard this scripture many times, but I want to read it first because it introduces me to the next one that I want to really talk about. And this is in verse number 7 in Romans 8. The carnal mind is enmity against God. One of the things the Bible talks about in the last days is that one of the characteristics of, of society is going to be full of God-haters. It actually uses that term, God-haters. They hate God. Why? Because of the mind they've been given is enmity against God. Now that doesn't mean that everybody is, has, a, has a burning hatred for God. It just means that uh, it's like my psychology professor told me. He said, indifference is a negative attitude. And if you are indifferent, it's negative. So a vast majority of the people in this world, as far as any relationship with, with God, they're indifferent about it, which means they're negative. On the other hand, there are people who are just plain hostile. There are people who profess Christianity, and uh, they like to go to church and all this kind of thing, but what is their reaction when they find out what you believe? When they find out what you believe, I can tell you, you see the real antagonism begin to come forth. They would like you to be like them. But if you've been called and you have a knowledge of truth, you cannot be like them. And they're going to dislike you and be upset and in sometimes, in some cases, outright, outrightly just hate you for what you believe. So you need to be aware of that. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now here's a verse I want to get at. I'm talking about what chance do we have to achieve what God placed us on this earth for if we do not have God's help? And here's what you read. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now we're all in the flesh, aren't we? So it must mean something else. It must mean that we're in the flesh as opposed to being in union with God by means of his spirit. And if we're in the flesh, that means our desires, our thinking, our appetites and everything are going to be either indifferent or hostile. And this is what it says here. If you're in the flesh, you can't, you can't please him. 1 Peter 2, verse number 22. 1 Peter 2, verse number 22. Uh, 25, I should say. 1 Peter 2. 25. This is actually uh, this is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a part of the very important sec section there in Isaiah 53 about Christ's sacrifice for man for the sins of mankind. But it uh, it summarizes it here in verse number 25. For you were like sheep going astray. Now has the world gone astray today? What about our nation? What about, what about all the nations on this earth and their moral values? I mean, you look at the heathen nations around this world today, and what are their moral principles and values? 
You even look at Europe and what's happened to Europe today. Now, you can consider even them the Muslims. They have certain things that they try to live up to, and they're very strict about that. They want to cut off a man's hand if he steals something. And if a woman is raped, she's automatically guilty, and so they execute her. It's not the, it's not the rapist's fault. And she has to have four witnesses to prove she was raped. So what chance does a woman have in that society? But most important of all, can you imagine a religion that teaches you the way you get to heaven and have 72 virgins is to kill somebody? That's one of the most abominable religions you can ever imagine. And it's extremely dangerous. That's why these people go out and commit suicide because they're young, they don't have any money, they don't have any way to find a wife, and a lot of rich ones have harems of several wives, and so they don't have any goal in life except to, to get 72 virgins, so they go out and commit suicide with suicide bombs for that very purpose. Now, can you imagine a religion like that? That's the Muslim religion. So that's why you read here. You look at this world, and how far has it gone astray? The moral values of the Oriental world pretty bad. The moral values of Europe are bad. The moral values of the United States, what are they today? They're very bad. So this is a society in which we live in. Have we, has, has the whole nation gone astray? And you think for one moment, I know there are those pastors out there and I get, I get literature from them occasionally, usually unsolicited, and they're inviting me to this big conference and they're telling me that I need to come because they can get a big movement going and get America back on tracks. They're daydreaming. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Mark 7. And uh, this is, uh, we've, we've, we've gone over this scripture many times, but I want to touch on it here because I think it gives you a perspective of, of, of what, man, what man's condition is like and what chance he has without God's help. You see, this involved a, another discussion that Jesus got into with these religious leaders because they were accusing his disciples of... Uh, and not washing their hands before they ate. And then he went on to describe what goes on because he said here, Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? He's talking spiritually. Because it does not enter into his heart. And that's a representation or a symbol of his, his mind, uh, his whole... Um, mental perspective and everything that makes him up it can't it doesn't enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminating is eliminated um thus purifying all few foods and he said here's here's what the problem is what comes out of a man that defiles a man for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And it seems like so many people today, if uh, the general population has a certain trend, they will generally follow along with it. I've been amazed at that. It's just like in ancient Israel. When you had a wicked, wicked king, the people just followed along with him. And when you had a righteous king, then they would follow along with him. And you have, a, you have a whole society that's becoming wicked and the whole media is influencing that way. People think that's a proper thing to do. That's what makes you acceptable. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So... Um, I was reading the other day, I, I forget which it, woman it is, it's one of the movie stars, and uh, she's, she's one of the few that has some common sense, but she, because she started a whole line of clothing now that is getting away from all these lewd styles women are wearing. 
And uh, when young women start exposing, uh, wearing their, their, their dresses short and exposing their midriffs, and, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of them really realize what they look like because I see them coming down the street and there's big these rolls of fat sticking out on each side. They don't know what they look like. But uh, that becomes a popular thing. Now, why do people do that? Because you go to a store and can you buy anything else? This is what the industry is doing. This is Satan's world. And if you're going to be a godly person, you cannot go along with these things. And that's, that's evil because you even read about lewdness here, don't you? John 8, verse number 44. John 8, verse number 44. Here were the people who were the stalwarts of religion in the time of Christ. And what did he say to them? Here's what he said to them. You are of your father the devil. That's the God of this world. That's a spiritual father of most people. They don't realize it. They'd probably probably be really shocked if it really dawned on them what category they fit into as far as God's concerned. You're of your father the devil and the desires, the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, how often do we catch notable people in society today uh, lying? Have you ever told a lie? Well, I did. Many a time when I was a young man growing up, I try very, very hard not to do anything like that now. I try very hard. Because you're a whole lot better. It's like one man told me. He said, he said I don't know why I always lie when the truth would serve me better. Some people get into a, a, um, a habit of lying. It just becomes a way of life to them. Well, I can tell you, the Bible, you read Revelation 21, and what does it say about liars? They're not going to be in the kingdom of God. That's a very important thing. That has to do again with the control of the tongue, doesn't it? So you see, you can be a outstanding religious figure in society in this world and you can still be a son of the devil. And that's what we have, that's a chance we have without God's help. Now, let's get to the last thing. What can we accomplish with God's help? That's the crux of the whole thing right there. Because that's the help we have to have. You'll find a brief comment made by David here in Psalm 130 and verse number 3. Psalm 130 and verse number 3. O Lord... If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So what does that mean? Well, that means that there is a way to have all these iniquities removed. Because if God never forgave any of them, what chance would any of us have? So when we do things that are wrong, and those of us who are converted understand the truth, we certainly know how to get the help we need from God to overcome it. But God is very, very merciful and patient and kind. And uh, you think he doesn't know what, what we're made of? You think he doesn't know what natures we have? Well, he's sure he certainly knows, but he's also provided a provision that we can overcome those things. Why? It's a character-building process. God is perfect, righteous character. That means that, number one, he absolutely understands the difference between right and wrong, and number two, he always does right instead of wrong. And as the Bible says, it's impossible for him to lie. He doesn't have a nature that even allows it. Our nature is exactly the opposite, isn't it? All right, that being the case, then, 
how how are how is there going to be a provision made that we can get out of this dilemma we're in as human beings with this human nature Romans 8 verse number 30 Romans 8 verse 30 Pardon me, verse 20. Romans 8, verse 20. Paul says this, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Remember what Jesus said? If you can't be faithful in the little things, you cannot be trusted in the big things. And these physical experiences and these things the Bible instructs and tells us in this physical life are the little things. The big things are going to involve what takes place in the kingdom of God. When he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, have, over, have authority over ten cities. Because you proved that you can, you can handle little things now and you're faithful in the little things that God instructs. And if you can be faithful in those, then God knows you can be faithful in the big things later on. If you, can't be, if you can't be faithful in the little things, you can't be faithful in the big things. That's just the way it is. That's what character is. You remember a few years back when we had this terrible thing going on with one of the leaders of our nation who was involved with, with other women? And uh, there were people out there making all kinds of excuses for it, and it came up, this is really true. Character is important. Absolutely. And it's very important to God. And it's a difference in knowing between right and wrong and then always choosing the right in opposition to the wrong. And it's a character-building process we're placed on this earth for. And in order to build this character, we have to overcome these things that are the absolute opposite of it. You look at God's nature and you look at man's nature, and I mean you're looking at two opposites. So what do you read here? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation earnestly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity or futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be, be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That certainly means human beings. And we're enslaved. As I pointed out, every single one of us, whether we recognize it or not, we are born slaves. What are we slaves to? We're slaves to sin. Christ came to free us from the slavery of sin. And that's what we receive when we repent and turn to God in the right way. Not the way Charlemagne made all the Saxons repent and, and accept God. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. I said earlier, you have to recognize the things in this world that are really not that invaluable and that important as far as God's concerned, because these are the things that make up a part of the world and the things that are destructive. So we read here in Second uh, in First John 2, verse number 15, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Now, if you love them, that certainly would mean that you make them your primary, your primary interest in life, and that's all you live for. I've commented on this before. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And one of the reasons I won't forget it is when I went down there, I drove down to Wooster, Ohio from, from Akron. I forget it was an hour and a half drive maybe. And this uh, assistant with me gave me a uh, stick of gum. And I chewed that gum all the way down there and all the way home. And that night, I was up walking the floor all night long with a nerve attack on my, my tooth from chewing that gum. But what really struck me on that occasion was I wanted to see this woman who had written in for a visit 
And I finally found her. She wasn't at home, and her sons had to go get her. She was over playing poker somewhere. And she came back over, and she, I was talking to her, and she was lighting up cigarettes. And I, I don't remember what her name was, but I said, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, now if you're going to be a Christian, there's two things you've got to do right off the bat here. You're going to have to give up smoking, and you have to, you're going to have to give up playing gambling. She looked at me, and she said, well, Mr. Clark, she said, if I had to give up smoking and gambling, I'd have nothing to live for. Now, can you imagine that? That was as much as her mind comprehended the importance of human life. She'd been up all night long gambling. And she's still at the gambling table, and I got down there about noon that day. It's just amazing how people can get tied up in things. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is, those are the most important things in your life, more important than the spiritual things of God. For all that is in the world, here it is, here's a summary of it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And it will pass away. How soon? Only God knows the timetable. But it, it, it is not going to be like it is now at all. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now we're flesh and blood. We can die and then we can go back to the dust of the earth. We're physical. But it says here, right here, that if we do the will of God, we're going to completely supersede that physical and we're going to continue to live even though what is in this world perishes. John 15, verse number 5. Do you remember what Jesus said? We're talking about what we can accomplish with God's help. And here's what Jesus himself said. John 15, verse number 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You can't overcome. You cannot do what's pleasing to God. Unless you have Christ's help. That's why he said you have to have his spirit. And his spirit is not given on the basis of getting a white shirt. I can tell you that for sure. 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. 1 Peter 2, verse number 24. Here's an example, beginning in verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, isn't that difficult to do? What is your reaction if somebody up, comes up and accuses you of something? You'll immediately come to the defense, won't you? Well, Christ was completely innocent of every accusation made against him, and he did not even argue with him. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So he died for us. Now that's how we receive his help, is accepting that sacrifice and then turning to God, repenting, and being baptized. Colossians 1, verse number 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So when you become converted and you receive God's Spirit, and your life begins to change, and you can see the changes that are taking place, and other people can see those changes that are taking place, you've been translated, you've been changed into a, to a different category as far as God regards you. That's called, as it says here, it's used the word translated in the King James, but it means to convey or to change sides. You've had a change of sides. 
And you're no longer on Satan's side, but you're on God's side because he puts you there. In Romans 8, verse number 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's what it takes. But it has to be through the, it is done through the very power of God. And as Paul states it here, puts it here in Hebrews chapter 2, and verse number 15, he says, Hebrews 2, verse 15, well, let's pick it up in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that is, that's we're all flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same. When Christ came, he came in the flesh. He was a human being. He had the same kind of nature we did. But God gave the Spirit to him without measure. And he lived a perfect life. Not sinning even in thought. That's the difference between Christ and us. All right. That through death he might annul him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And release. This is a situation we're all in. And release those who through fear of death were in their lifetime subject to bondage. How many people fear death? It's just natural to fear death. But it's just, this, this, this physical life is just a temporary life anyway, but we've been freed from the power of the devil and we have been given this opportunity for eternal life. And here's how Paul described it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 13. Keep this in mind because we're talking here now about what we can accomplish with God's help. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it takes. Who's going to win the battle? The person who wins a battle is the one who has the help and the power of God. And that help and power of God comes by means of meeting the requirements he sets forth. Repentance, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, and growing in grace and in knowledge.